Welcome to season seven of PIN South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm your host, PIN South Africa board member, Bongani Kona. Every year on the 15th of November, PIN centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. At the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering them a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with Dr. Hani Babu, who has been unjustly detained by the Indian authorities. Hani Babu is an associate professor of language and linguistics at Delhi University and a committed anti-caste activist and advocate for greater protections of marginalized languages. He has regularly used his writing to highlight the relationship between human rights and linguistic plurality. Babu is one of 16 writers, scholars and activists including Varavara Rao, who have been targeted by the Indian government under India's counter-terrorism law, the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act. The charges against the group, referred to as the BK-16, reportedly arose from evidence of their, and I quote, involvement in inciting violence, end quote, at a public event held on 31 December 2017 by activists advocating for the rights of Dalits and other marginalized communities. On 1 January 2018, one day after the event, riots erupted between Dalits and Hindu nationalists during a celebratory gathering to mark the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Bhima Koryagon, a significant cultural event among India's Dalit community. On 10 September 2019, Babu's home was raided by police without a search warrant. He was arrested by India's National Investigation Agency on 28 July 2020 and sent to India's notorious Taloja Central Jail, where he has since been held in grossly inadequate conditions. In May 2021, Babu was repeatedly denied basic medical treatment after contracting a severe eye infection, eventually resulting in his temporary hospitalization before he was forced to return to prison. Penn International considers Hani Babu's detention and that of his fellow activists a breach of their right to freedom of expression. Penn South Africa joins Penn International in calling on Indian authorities to release them. You can read more about the intricacies of this case in our show notes. In this third episode of our Black History season, Eko Deka invites Millard Arnold to reflect on his life, work, and his long relationship with South Africa. They discuss Millard's early role as a journalist for the Washington Post, his book, The Testimony of Steve Biko, which was banned until 1984, as well as his work for the Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Eko Deka is an oil field engineer turned banker turned writer. He splits his time unevenly between working in data science and writing. He is a previous board member of Penn South Africa and the author of four novels, White Wahala, Dying in New York, The God Who Made Mistakes, and Yellowbone. Eko grew up in Ghana and studied in the United Kingdom, the United States, and France. He now lives and works in Johannesburg, South Africa. Your book made me wonder, and I think it's something which you mentioned in the book as well, that the Sasso BPC trial doesn't seem to be remembered in the same way as the Rivonia trial or the treason trial, even though the Sasso BPC trial was the most recent. Millard Arnold is a senior advisor at the Johannesburg office of Bowman's law firm. He is chairman of the Rhodes University Business School Advisory Board. Millard has also served as a U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs and a senior fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He received his BA from Howard University and his Juris Doctorate degree from the University of Notre Dame School of Law in Indiana in the USA. He's the editor of the books The Testimony of Steve Biko and No Fears Expressed, quotes from Steve Biko. One of the most amazing 
things about Steve Biko, I think, is just how short his lifespan was as a political figure. He was dead by the time he was 30, and he burst on the scene by the time he was 21. So it is extraordinary that an individual who had a political lifespan of about eight years would have such a lasting impact on a nation and a people the way that Steve Beagle has. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Welcome to Penn South Africa's The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. This is the third episode of season seven. I'm Echo Duca, and I'm very pleased to be talking with Millard Arnold. We're both recording in our homes in Johannesburg. So you might hear some background sounds during the conversation as life goes on around us. In his expansive career, Millard Arnold has been a lawyer, a diplomat, a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, a Chairman and Director of Companies, Professor of Law, an author, journalist, poet, actor, artist, prize-winning photographer, and recipient of the U.S. government's gold medal for distinguished achievement in the Foreign Service. I almost don't know where to start, Milad, but, but a very big welcome to you. Thank you very much, Echo. It's a great pleasure to be with you and to be a part of this presentation. Wonderful. So why don't we start at the beginning? Your very impressive resume starts with your role as a staff reporter for the Washington Post newspaper in Washington, D.C. But I'm curious to know a little more about your life before that. Would you mind sharing with us where you were born and what were some of the formative experiences you had as a child and young man that might have nudged you towards a career in civil rights and indeed your enduring relationship with the African continent? Well, thank you, Echo. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. My parents are from there, mom and dad, now late, but they were both from Atlanta, Georgia. And I was the first born of the family. And my mother went back to Atlanta to be with her mother to witness the birth of her first grandchild, and that was me. But primarily, I grew up in initially New York, in Harlem, and then I think perhaps around the age of whatever age one is when you go to grade seven or eight, 12, maybe 11, 12, we moved to Connecticut. And that was an illuminating experience for me because I moved out of Harlem, which was, as many people tend to think, although no longer true today, primarily a black community, and then to move into Connecticut, Bristol, Connecticut, which was predominantly white community. And I had no exposure before to racism or to discrimination. And it was interesting. I can remember once coming home from school with my brothers and these young kids were yelling at us and they were calling us spear chuckers, which I thought was pretty cool. I mean, I thought it was a really nice thing. Spear chucker, (laughs) that's really nice. Only to later discover from other black friends that I can't let people call me that because of what it meant. And so that was sort of one of my first introductions to the idea that there is a racial difference in America. Because again, growing up in Harlem, I didn't see it. I wasn't aware of it. And I was 11 or 12, as I say, before I went to Connecticut and had that experience. Thereafter, obviously, you are constantly aware that you are different. But by the same token, and I must say, I have to disclose that I am now, week after next, I'll be 77. So this would have been in the early 50s, 60s, somewhere in there. And I was fortunate, if I can say that, because I experienced all of this in Connecticut. And the North was a great deal more liberal than the South. And we were, in effect, some 20 years ahead of the South in terms of dealing with issues around racism. So although I was experiencing it 
I was experienced in it probably in the mildest form you possibly could in the state of Connecticut. From there, Echo, I can go on, but I, I'm not really sure if I shouldn't just pause and see if there's a question or two you want before adding anything more to this particular part of the narrative. Oh, sure. And I just had a comment that you don't look 77. I would have said you look 57. <laughs> ah, you're a charmer. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to touch on the mood in the country, the mood in America at the time you started working. So thinking back to the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City, that's when Tommy Smith and John Carlos, both African-Americans, each raised a black glove fist during the playing of the U.S. national anthem during the medal ceremony. You started working at the Washington Post the following year. So what was the mood in America at that time? Was there anything particular about that period that drew you to journalism? Well, that I would love to say that there was some greater philosophical or political or moral rationale behind my desire to become a journalist. But the history of that, I, I think I have to take you back a bit and visit the time that I left high school because I graduated I went to three different high schools. I integrated two of those high schools. And that in and of itself had an emotional impact. And I'm not entirely sure if that impact I've ever recovered from. And the reason I say that is because in some ways, when you are, what, 14, 15, 16 years old, and you're the only black student in a school, you have uh, the only saving grace that I had was that I could play basketball, not terribly well, but enough to be able to at least play. But you never had a date. You never could go to any of the social functions. You were always, in a sense, ostracized. And you were always constantly being looked at with, with funny eyes, if I can say. I don't recall ever being particularly, I actually do. And my younger brother, this is before I went into high school, I remember that we were, we always would come out at lunchtime and we were constantly being harassed and tormented. And we would always find ourselves being backed up. It was my younger brother and myself backed up against the fence as these kids were yelling and making obscene gestures and whatever. And at one stage in one of those afternoons, my younger brother had had enough and he just hit the nearest person in front of him. And when he hit him, he knocked this kid down and believe it or not, that was the last we were ever tormented. I, I think the idea that we would actually mm -hmm. fight back was not, was an alien concept at the time. And I have to, I always think about and thank my brother for that introduction to not all violence is bad. So by the time 68 had arrived, well, let me back up again. I, I then went into high school. I integrated St. Anthony's and then moved to Hartford Public for my last, I think it was the last year or two of high school. But I was a complete alien because I was now coming out of a largely white environment into now a black environment again. But I had spent the last three years amongst basically white kids and white children and white community. And I now was again in a black community. And once again, I was not necessarily a laughing stock, but I didn't quite fit in. I wasn't quite uh, au fait, as the expression went, with what many in the black community were saying and doing. And it had an impact on my education. I, I was a dismal student out of some 400 graduating students. I think I was in the lower, I was in the, I, I graduated somewhere around 240, 250 out of 400. And there was no future for me in terms of going on to university. And my father said I had one of two choices, but both of those choices involved getting out of the house. One was I went to work and the other was that I considered going into the military. 
And I went into the military and in 1963. And that may have been the most important step in my life because I think I can now say that it was never a question of my having the ability to, to do good work or to excel academically. It just was that I was in the wrong environment at the wrong time. But in the military, I instantly became extremely successful. And to short circuit the story, I made every promotion cycle immediately. I was at one point airman of the month, airman of the year, and it culminated with my being selected for a national honor position for a visit that was coming into the air base where I was stationed at the time, which was in Karat, Thailand. And I was one of three chosen to meet this important dignitary, who it turned out was Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president of the United States. And that visit changed my life because his Secret Service agent said to me, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, I'm going to re-enlist. And he said, why? And I said, because I've, every time my unit has come up for promotion, I've been promoted. I've been Airman of the Month. I've been Airman of the Year. I've been chosen to be this National Honor Guard. He says, well, why don't you go to school? Why don't you go back to university? And I said, well, I'm not very good at that. I, I, I was in school. I didn't do very well at school. He said, but you just told me that you've done all of these things. If you can do all of those, you can succeed and you need to get an education. And that changed my life because I was about, I don't know how many days away from re-enlisting. But on the basis of that conversation, mm. I decided that I would try and go back to university. I had been taking courses while I was in the service, but I applied to Howard University because my younger brother was there at the time. And I thought if I run into any difficulty, at least I'll have him to be able to help me out. <laughs> and to make a long story right. short with that, I went to Howard, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but I went to Howard, and I managed to graduate Phi Beta Kappa Magna Cum Laude, and it demonstrated, as I've said, that at least I had the ability. It was just in the wrong environment. The only other point I, I would make about that was on Phi Beta Kappa, which is the National Honor Society in America. It's, it's a strange phenomenon. I think it's only 10% of American universities have chapters, uh, Phi Beta Kappa chapters, and very few people do have the opportunity to become a Phi Beta Kappa fraternity member or sorority. I guess it's a fraternity. Well, I don't know what you call it, Greek. Yeah, a Greek, Greek organization, yes. because I'm sure there are women who certainly are in it, and they wouldn't be in a fraternity. But I mentioned to the person that I didn't think I deserved to be there. And he said, why? And I said, well, I just worked out how, I, I just worked out which courses that I could take and excel at. And those were the courses that I took. And that's why I was able to achieve the grades that I did. And he said, well, that's why you're in Phi Beta Kappa, because you figured it out and never diminish what you've accomplished, others who had the same opportunity you did didn't figure it out, and that's why they're not in. And it was an important lesson for me because it helped me realize that my lack of confidence, as I had it at the time, was really not a problem that I, it was not the problem that I thought it was. So by that time in 68, I had missed the March on Washington, and I was now a student at Howard in 68. And my younger brother, again, gave me a book by a South African photographer by the name of Ernest Cole called House of Bondage. Mm. And that book, again, helped shape my life because it was all about South Africa. It was the first time in my experience, I guess I was about 18 years old, 19 maybe, that I had ever realized that there was discrimination elsewhere in the world besides the United States. I'd always just felt that discrimination was an American thing. And here was a book outlining what was going on in South Africa. And that book, again, changed my life because 
I then became devoted to the notion of understanding racism, understanding discrimination, understanding human rights, understanding the plight that Black people had been experiencing over the years, and, and it shaped my life. So that's great, and thank you very much for that. So you certainly charted a bright future for yourself. And at this juncture, I'd like us to turn to your book, The Testimony of Steve Biko. You edited this book and you provide incisive commentary around Steve Biko's testimony at the Sasso BPC trial in 1976. Sasso being the South African Students' Organization, of course, and BPC, the Black People's Convention. The book was banned in South Africa, and the ban on the book was only lifted in 1984. What impacts did the banning of the book have on you? I don't think it had much of an impact. I think what led to the book was that at the time I was working as the executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. It had a project that was devoted to South Africa called the South African Project, and we provided legal assistance and funding to lawyers who were handling political cases in South Africa at the time. And when Biko was killed, we had been funding the political trial to which he had appeared as a defense witness. And I was given the transcript of the trial. And when I read through it, I was just amazed at at the clarity of his thinking and the compelling arguments that he was making. And I realized that with his death in America, no one knew who Steve Biko was. And I went to the publisher, Random House, and uh, basically suggested to them that I had a couple of books that they might wish to consider involving Steve Biko. And they elected to publish what was then entitled Steve Biko Black Consciousness in South Africa. And the book was obviously banned in South Africa. They wouldn't allow it. It wasn't wasn't published here. It didn't have an impact. But on one point, I led, I was part of an American Bar Association mission to South Africa. And it must have been in the 80s, must have been, if the banning order was 84, it must have been 84, 85. And when I went in to meet with the Minister of Justice at the time, he said gleefully as he, he says, I've been waiting. This has given me such great joy. It's a pleasure to hand you this. And it was a copy of the banning order of my book, which I took as such an ironic thing to think that that would be a highlight of your life to hand someone a banning order with reference to the book. It, it didn't really impact me any there, but it has impact, it impacted me since then because I'm always amazed at the number of young people, now not so young, but young people at the time who come up to me later and said that they had read, they'd been able to get copies of the book one way or another and had read it and the impact that it had on them in terms of understanding who Steve Biko was, why he was important and the legacy that he's left. And I think for me, that's been something that I've been extremely, extremely pleased and, and, and proud to have played a small role in making Steve's life and his contributions known to many. Sure, thank you so much for that. You say in the introduction to the book that if Steve Biko had not been banned at the time, he likely would have been one of the accused. Yes. And had he been one of the accused, he might still be alive today. Why do you say that? Well, one of the most amazing things about Steve Biko, I think, that is rarely appreciated is just how short his lifespan was as a political figure. He was dead by the time he was 30, and he burst on the scene by the time he was 21. So for a period of eight to nine years is all that he ever had in the public eye And of that, much of it, he was banned and wasn't able to meet with people or to be able to communicate with a larger community. So it is extraordinary that an individual who had a 
lifespan, political lifespan of about eight years would have such a lasting impact on a nation and a people the way that Steve Beagle has. So when I say it was fortunate, it would have been fortunate had he been able to have been one of the accused. It's because he was banned at the time that the incident that gave rise to the trial of his colleagues, the Sasso BPC trial or a trial of black consciousness, which took place in 1976, had he been able to have been active, he would have probably been involved in organizing the rally that gave rise to the arrest of his nine colleagues. And he would have probably been one of them. And because he would have also been found guilty, he would have gone to prison and he would have spent five years in Robben Island. He would have come out and he would have, his career would have gone on and he would have been, who knows, even today, president of South Africa or have served as president of South Africa. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. He was, he was, he was banned back to his home in King Williamstown. He was subsequently picked up by the security police, assaulted, held, and beaten to death. And he now has become one of the more important figures that South Africa reveres uh, because of his contribution. But it is a pity that in some ways that he wasn't free to be able to participate in this rally because had he done so, he would have been alive. Let's speak for a moment about about Black Pride. Steve Biko spoke very forcefully about instilling a sense of dignity within the Black man. And here we are almost 50 years after Steve Biko took the witness stand. In your view, has that objective of instilling a sense of dignity within the Black man, has that objective been achieved? Or would he stay be still have a way to go? That's a very good question, Echo. I think it has on one level. I don't think you can today look at many of the expressions coming out of political leaders, particularly black political leaders in South Africa, where you don't hear vestiges of black consciousness, of black pride. Even to the point when you look at something like the EFF and radical economic transformation, that is a black consciousness concept. It wasn't called radical economic transformation, nor was it seen in the time as that. But what Steve Biko talked about was the need to think about the way in which we need to structure an environment that would be understanding of and committed to the betterment of black people. And so you see that. So on one level, yes, I I think his installation of of Black pride in Black South Africans is there. But the legacy of racism, the legacy of white privilege, the legacy of how people have deferred to the notion that they are not as well-blessed as their counterparts of a lighter shade still remains today. I I think there is a residue of that continued, what's the good word to use, inferiority complex, for lack of a better word. And that's not meant to be a criticism of the Black South Africans. It's meant to reflect the history of what they've come through, where you have always been denied the opportunity to be yourself, to be a part of a society which is meaningful and which you contribute to. And if there's any great pity now that I think Steve would would be appalled and dismayed by is where the country is today. And I, I think without question, he would be, I would like to think in opposition to what he has seen transpire over the last 10, 12 years in South Africa. The notion of state capture and the the plundering of the resources of the state, which continues as we speak, 
for the benefit of a very, very select few at the expense of the majority of Black people who have spent eons fighting for dignity and decency to have that taken from them by the very government that they hoped would deliver on their behalf has been has been disappointing to say the least dismal in many instances in terms of the way in which black people have been treated as a consequence of the so-called liberation struggle which has resulted in corruption at a level we've not seen before thank you milad I'd like us to go back to speak about the Black Power Movement in America and its relationship, if any, to Black consciousness. So the court asked Steve Biko whether Black consciousness and Black power were the same. And Steve Biko's answer was, they certainly are not. Would you agree with that? I would. I, I do recall that. I, I don't recall the exact response that Steve gave, but I would echo that by saying that black consciousness in South Africa was an attempt psychologically to raise the profile of the people who owned the country. It was about a need to reclaim what was rightfully theirs. Black power in the United States was just simply an opportunity for black people who had been denied the opportunity to participate in a society, to have a voice and to be heard and understood as an equal in society. I think that that's a fundamental difference. It never was a case in the United States that black people were the majority and that they were trying to reclaim a right that was theirs. Rather, it was a minority seeking to establish the right to have equality with a colleague and colleagues of a different persuasion. So I I think there is a a fundamental difference between uh, Black consciousness on the one hand and Black power on the other. You spoke about the 1968 Olympics and John Carls and Smith, their protests. And that was a defiant way of saying, we are here, you have to recognize us, you have to accept us. That was black power. Black consciousness, it strikes me, is a broader, more inclusive notion of black people across the spectrum of society arising and and seizing what is rightfully theirs. So. I do think they're different. Thank you. And at one point, when discussing the the nuances of language, and I was very fascinated to read the testimony, Steve Biko says to Mr. Atwell, the prosecutor, you've got to be Black to understand what I'm talking about. So as an author yourself, at what point does language exhaust its ability to convey a lived experience to another person who didn't experience the same? Oh, what a question, Echo. (laughs) I suppose that's what a gifted writer is able to do, and that may well distinguish or differentiate a great writer from a mediocre one. Is it possible to put yourself into shoes that are not only not yours, but uncomfortable to wear and make you realize and feel that they are yours. So a, an ancillary way of answering that is to say, you and I were to try and understand and position ourselves to appreciate what it is that a woman experiences. Can you write about that in such a way that you can convey in a meaningful and coherent and compelling way the experiences that a woman has? I don't know if I can, but I think I I enjoy the challenge of constantly thinking that I have to, that I must, if I were to write, understand what it is whether I'm talking now as as a woman or speaking as someone 
who has not been exposed to being black or white or Hispanic or whatever it may be, what that difference might be. Can it be done? A very, very good writer, I think, can do that. So let's come back to the Sasso BPC trial. Your book made me wonder, and I think it's something which you mentioned in the book as well, that the Sasso BPC trial doesn't seem to be remembered in the same way as the Rivonia trial or the treason trial, even though the Sasso BPC trial was the most recent. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's politics more than anything else. The Sasso BPC trial was in some ways quite amazing. I think you've looked at the books that I've done, but I I remember in writing the introduction to the uh, Steve Biko, the No Fears Expressed, and I wrote it that no shots were ever fired, no bombs ever detonated, no grenades tossed, no threats made, not even a stone was thrown, and yet nine accused were on trial for terrorism. Their crime? Supporting what the state called violent revolutionary change. For four years, that trial went on. It was the longest terrorism trial in South Africa's history. And yet no shots were ever fired, no bombs ever detonated, no grenades tossed, no threats made, no stones thrown. It was black consciousness that was on trial. And that was a concept that had emerged as a part of the notion of black political consciousness. And it was a concept that in some ways caught the prevailing ANC and PAC off guard. They were out of the country. They were banned. They were listed as communist organizations. They were underground. And this grassroots organization that had sprung up, Black Consciousness, created a a kind of wave of new thinking, new thought. And in fact, the Sasso BPC trial, of which Steve Biko's last public appearance, led, I honestly believe, to the uprising that took place in June 1976. Because it was only months after, I think it was a month after, Biko's testimony at that trial that June 1976 occurred. And I think the reason people don't talk about the Sasso BPC trial being as important is because politically there is no no organization. Yes, there is a Zapo, but there is no there is no organization that represents black consciousness the way that there are organizations that look at the treason trial or the Rivonia trial. You mentioned in the book that you spoke briefly with Steve Biko on the telephone a few months before his death. And it was clear that you treasure that brief conversation. Can you share with us what goes through your mind when you recall that telephone call? Yeah, I I think the biggest single thought that goes through my mind is one of great regret that I didn't realize how important that moment was and how I wish I could have recorded it in some form or fashion and that I might have been more astute about having the opportunity to have a conversation with someone like Steve Bego. My regret simply is that it was a perfunctory conversation which had I known that I would never speak again to him and that he would become the martyr that he has become and that I had an opportunity to talk to him at great length about perhaps any number of things, I just regret that I wasn't able to take full advantage of the opportunity that had been given to me. You know, it's easy to look back on this in hindsight and say, well, look, you didn't know he was going to die and, you know, And I can also appreciate that at the time that we had the conversation, Steve had no idea who I was. And, you know, he had every reason to be circumspect and 
cautious in terms of the conversation we were having. So it probably wasn't even possible to have had a meaningful conversation. But when I think about it, just to have heard his voice and to think that I've had that one moment of intimacy with him, to have had that one opportunity to have heard and shared a conversation, it means a lot. And it was, again, one of the reasons why I put this book together. Thank you very much. Before we continue, Milad, would you kindly read a brief extract from the book, The Testimony of Steve Biko? Yeah, okay. Let me preface what I'm about to read. And this is taken, I believe it was day three of the four and a half days that Biko was on the stand. And he was now being cross-examined by uh, the prosecutor, Mr. Atwell. And Mr. Atwell was trying to link the black consciousness movement and the defendants in the trial to the banned organizations, the African National Congress and the Pan-African Congress, both of whom had been classified by the government of the day as being communist and terrorist organizations. So Atwell was seeking to try and establish a link between black consciousness and the ANC and the PAC, which would allow them to be, allow him to be able to say, well, you see, you are one of them. You are a terrorist because even though you are in a different organization, you have aligned yourself with the PAC and the ANC. And he asked Biko what image he thinks that the, the Black People's Convention is giving in documents that he had shown to the court. And Biko says, and I'm quoting and I'll follow, well, I think this is just reference to two organizations which exist in the history of Black people. Mr. Atwell says, with approval or disapproval or merely a statement of fact. Biko says, I think, Mr. Atwell, one thing you must realize is that the concept of struggle, which is struggle from liberation of yourself, from anything threatening you, is continuous through history. At different times, it is picked up by different people in different methods, okay? But the struggle is what we attach ourselves to. We must recognize that the ANC and the PAC were involved in the struggle and were not involved in the struggle for selfish purposes. It was certainly on behalf of Blacks and for the liberation of Blacks. We may or may not necessarily approve of their methods, but the fact is they exist in history as protagonists of our struggle. Without agreeing with them, we give them their due for existing in our history and for pushing the struggle forward. I think this is the context in which reference to the ANC and PAC have been made in this document. And I am sure I have made the same references myself in a sense in some of the articles I have written. Thank you very much, Milad. So for my final question, Steve Biko said on the stand, and I quote, that the future will always be shaped by the sequence of present-day events. With those words in mind and reflecting on present-day events in South Africa, what do you think the future holds for this country? Oh, Echo, I wish I could have a ready, well-clad, well-made answer for that question. We are at a turning point, I do think, um, for South Africa. I think there is great disappointment in President Ramaphosa. And it's most unfortunate because there was, I think, a perception that he was our last great hope, that he was a man who would be able to restore the decency and dignity of black people, but not only that, 
but would be able to pull together a government that could address the concerns and needs of all other people of South Africa. He might be able to do that, but I think the time has run out on him. We're coming up on elections next year. And my guess is that the ANC for the first time will not win a majority of the votes. And we will be faced with a coalition government. And if that is the case, it is likely that that coalition government will be one that is between the ANC and the EFF. And if it turns out that the ANC has to turn to the economic freedom fighters for support, the economic freedom fighters are going to make it very clear that they will not accept a coalition that has Ramaphosa as its president. And pressure will then be put on the ANC to come up with a alternative choice for president. And that choice would be Paul Mashatili. And the EFF would put forward uh, Julius Malimba as their vice president. And that would be the coalition that would take us into the future. And that coalition, I think, if that were to be the case, would be problematic for the future of the country. In the end, this country is going to have to depend on the citizenry to be able to pull together a response to a political process that has fallen afoul of the kind of democracy and political representation that the country deserves. Always the question is, is the glass half empty or half full? Normally, I'm an optimist and glass is always half full. On this issue, I'm afraid the glass is half empty. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on that, Millard. And now for the tribute section. The empty chair for this episode is Hani Babu, a linguistic scholar and activist detained in India. Hani Babu has regularly used his writing to highlight the relationship between human rights and linguistic plurality and advocates for greater protections for marginalized languages. At this juncture, Milad and I will both read a short tribute to Hani. Penn International is in contact with Hani's wife and will relay these messages to her. So Milad, would you kindly lead the way and read a short tribute to Hani? With pleasure, Echo. This is a poem I've written as a tribute to Hani Babu, and it's entitled, My India. They came in the morning, my India, the silencers. They came to silence an inconvenient irritation, my India. They came to silence me, my India. They came to silence Hani Babu on concocted charges of criminality, my India. They came because I questioned truths and betrayed values. They came to silence me, my India. They came because my journey of thoughts threatened their corrosive thinking, my India. Thinking based on frozen shards of antiquity, the notion of who we are, unpure, unworthy, untouchable, unwanted. A scalling cesspool of intolerance. They came to silence me, my India, because I dared to challenge a world based on a hierarchy of hostilities, my India, because I seek to unravel a falsehood of mythologies, my India. They came to silence me, my India, unwilling to accept that they are because I am, and I am because they are. We are a oneness, a wholeness, my India. There is no OBC. Rather, see us be, my India, a oneness, a wholeness. But they came to silence me, my India. They came to silence us, my India. They came to silence my India.
Thank you so much for those moving words, Milad. For my tribute, I've chosen to read a few words that Milad wrote about Steve Biko in his book, The Testimony of Steve Biko. They come at the very end of the book, and I hope they give some comfort to Hani and his family. He wrote, and he wrote with clarity, zealousness, and purpose. He was the rare political figure who was charismatic, psychologically astute, a keen educationalist, and an exceptional strategist. He used words to cajole, educate, enlighten, inform, direct, and instruct. He had much to offer, much to give. So thank you, Bilad, for gracing us with your presence and for sharing your thoughts this evening. It's been such a rare privilege and an honor speaking with you. And to all our listeners, it's been a pleasure to be in your company. Keep well and goodbye. Thank you, Echo. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to Echo and Milad for this important, inspiring and enriching conversation. This episode was produced by Andre Bennett. Thanks to our executive producer, Lara Buxbaum, to Penn SA board members, Nadia Davids, Yawande Omotoso, Kate Hyman, and the whole of the board of Penn South Africa. And thanks too to Amy Bell Mulaudzi and Jahan Jones Radkowski for their support. Join us again next week for a new episode of season seven of The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech, and our solidarity with imprisoned writers across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversation and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa, and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening.